According to Merriam-Webster, a classic serves as a standard of excellence or recognized value. It's traditional and enduring. It's historically memorable. It's a work of enduring excellence. It's a typical or perfect example. So maybe you don't believe that anything's perfect or that being typical is cool, but I think we can all agree that Louisa May Alcott's Little Women is a classic and that it's pretty enduring, excellent, and memorable. That's why we're talking about it on today's episode of the SSR Podcast. Published in 1868, Little Women is the story of the four March sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, working to make ends meet during the Civil War era. It's about family and friendship and hard work and what happens when the people you love grow and change. It's, of course, about sisterhood. Over the course of its 700-plus pages, it gives us plenty to talk about, even all these years later. Does everyone really want to be free-spirited second sister Joe? Should Joe have married next-door neighbor Laurie? Why did Louisa May Alcott have to break our hearts so deeply by killing Beth? And, perhaps most interestingly, is Little Women a feminist or an anti-feminist novel? You'll hear me discuss it all with this week's guest, Caitlin Kunkel. Caitlin Kunkel is a comedy writer and satirist whose work has been featured in The New Yorker and McSweeney's, and she's been the writer for the variety show Live Wire on Public Radio International. She's the co-founder of The Belladonna, a comedy and satire site for women writers of all definitions. With the three other co-founders, she published the satirical gift book, New Erotica for Feminists, Satirical Fantasies of Love, Lust, and Equal Pay, which was named one of the 10 best comedy books of 2018 by New York Magazine. Highly recommend, listeners. Highly recommend. Caitlin also created the online satire writing program for the Second City and teaches satire and writing workshops across the U.S. In 2019, she co-created and produced the Satire and Humor Festival in New York. Check out Caitlin's personal website at CaitlinKunkel.com and follow her on Instagram and Twitter at KunkelTron. All of these links, along with links that will take you right to Caitlin's book and to the Belladonna, will be easily available for you in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 40. Also in the show notes for this week, you'll find dreamy teen heartthrob Christian Bale and a quiz to help you figure out whether you're a Meg, a Joe, a Beth, or an Amy. Follow SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod and join the conversation on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. If you want to share your support for the show with a few dollars per month, visit our Patreon page at www patreon.com slash SSR podcast and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get some awesome exclusive perks in return. Thanks so much to all of the Patreon sponsors out there who are already helping me make SSR happen. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. We are talking about Little Women, and I know this book is extremely close to your heart, to my heart, to a lot of hearts. It's true. When you sent me the list of books I could choose from, I like squeaked when I saw Little Women. The thought of rereading it, I probably haven't read it since I was maybe like 15. So it's been almost 20 years, and it was a really like a wonderful experience to start 2019 with. So I'm very happy. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I could give you that good year starting experience. I'll start with two quick disclaimers for listeners. The first is that as we record, it's like the windiest day that I can ever remember in New York City. And I recorded in my apartment where there happened to be a lot of windows. So I'm hoping that you won't be able to hear the wind, but if you can just consider it a little extra atmosphere, some more ambiance. You can feel like you're here in New York with Caitlin and I just chatting about little women. The second disclaimer is that this is the longest book that we've covered on the show. It's (laughs) the oldest. It's the most classic. It's really this brick of a book. Caitlin just showed me she has the same edition that I do. And it's a smaller trim size, so it really looks like a a brick. Um, 777 pages. (laughs) It's long. We committed to this book. So I prepared for this 
recording a little bit differently than I do a lot of others. Often I'll do a ton of annotating in the actual book itself and I'll pull out tons of quotes. I was worried it would bog me down to do that with this book because I really wanted Mm -hmm. to experience it. So a lot of the preparation that I did for this episode was more in reading commentary about the book, think pieces about the book, because again, since this book is so old and has such a classic vibe to it, there's a lot out there about it. So I prepared a little bit differently. This book is too long for us to get bogged down in the details. So I think we'll talk like more generally about characters and we'll talk about some of the like larger philosophies around it but I just wanted to let readers know like this might feel a little bit different because I prepared a little bit differently so we'll see how it goes great and it's interesting you read commentary I actually didn't read any commentary because I wanted to re-experience it again but after we stop recording I'm going to go read so much commentary so (laughs) I specifically didn't want other voices in my head right now but I'm eager to hear what you read there's so much out there I didn't read it until after I finished the book but there's so much right now because there is a new BB adaptation that came out last year mm-hmm. and then Greta Gerwig is working <gasps> I know <laughs> I'm so and pumped the cast sounds like such a dream like the whole time we I will talk about we watched one of the movies but like I'm just like envisioning these new people in these roles and as I was reading it I was thinking about Timothée Chalamet and just getting very excited I honestly cannot wait to see what she does me too listeners we have Timothy Chalamet as Laurie we have Emma Watson as Meg we have Saoirse Ronan as Joe obviously we have Meryl Streep as Aunt March it really doesn't get any better at all I loved Lady Bird and I loved um, Frances Ha, which she co-wrote and obviously was in. So I think she's a perfect choice, too. And she honestly looks like she could play any of the characters, too. She could play Amy in her 30s. So I cannot wait. I totally agree. So I think our timing in some ways is really great because at the end of 2018, there was all of this new commentary coming out about the book about how other creators have adapted it. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. I'll include links to everything that I found in the show notes. But if I really wanted to, I could have gone like 30 Google search pages deep preparing for this. Definitely. It's just something, it's interesting. So many women read this growing up. Um, A lot of people I talked to read it with their moms or their sisters. That's how I also read it. Um, And so when you bring it up, it's just one of those things where people like immediately almost get tears in their eyes right away because you have such strong emotions affiliated with this book, myself included. I cried so many times reading this book, which is pretty unusual for me. I don't cry that much when I'm reading. So it was, it's been a month. Lots of feelings associated with this book. Do you remember how old you were when you read it the first time? Like, give me a little sense of the history of your first experience with the book. I would say maybe eight or nine. I'm the oldest and I have two sisters who are within four years of me. So I think my mother was reading it to all of us together. Um, I was also a voracious reader when I was younger, so I think I was reading some of it on my own at that point. And then I remember rereading it numerous times. I'm a Joe. I'm very much a Joe. <laughs> so since you know her perspective is also Louisa May Alcott's perspective, I was very like into that meta writing thing. Um, but I know like one of my sisters really loved Meg. The other one loves Beth. <laughs> so it's also like I don't know if you like associated with one of the sisters. I think most people are Joes when they read it because she's the heroine. <laughs> was that you too? Well, I was thinking. Like, is there anybody who doesn't want to be Joe? Like, because I I do think that it's clear the way the book is written that we're meant to love Joe best. And a lot of that, I think, is because she's the avatar for Louisa May Alcott. The more I read about the author, the more I realized that, like, she's telling her own story through Joe. Mm -hmm. But I was just wondering, like, is there anybody out there who's like, no, I want to be Beth. I want to be Amy. I want to be Meg. And I have this very, very clear memory from when I was younger because I'm also the oldest of sisters. So we share that Mm -hmm. in common, which I'm sure colors the way that we experience this book. But I'm the oldest of four, which is perfect. And I remember reading this book for the first time when I was very young. I mean, I think it was one of these like big undertakings where I was probably eight or nine and I was like, I'm going to read this myself. And I'm sure it took me months because it's a long book, even for an adult. And I remember my grandmother telling me like, oh, Allie, you're a lovely Meg. And I was so mad. (laughs) Oh my God. I would have considered that like a huge insult if someone had said that to me growing up. Even though you look at it and Meg is like a wonderful person who like lets go of her childish urges to marry someone for money. Like she is like, she's a great mother. Like, and in the book you get all that stuff about like her marriage, which is really interesting. Um, but yeah, if someone had told me when I was nine that I was a Meg, I would have been like, get out of here. I am a Joe. <laughs> Even at that age, I always loved to read. I always loved to write. So at that very obvious level, I associated with Joe 
And I'm sure my grandmother didn't mean anything by it. Like you said, there's a lot of amazing qualities about Meg. I think now as an older sister who's experienced all of these years of being an older sister to my younger sisters, I can appreciate even more how kind Meg is and how much care she takes for her siblings. Because that's a hard thing to do, I think, especially as you get older, like to continue to support your younger siblings in the ways that you need them to isn't, you don't always know what they need or that's been my experience. Like I think as we get older, sometimes it's harder to tap into what you're supposed to do in whatever your sibling role is. So I really always appreciated that Meg was so sweet to her sisters. And there's something very appealing, I think, when you're younger about the older sister being able to go off to all of these balls and have these fancy friends that Meg has. But I just had this visceral reaction, even at that young age, where I was like, no, I'm Joe. And so I wonder now if there are a lot of women out there who associate with the other characters or if it's really primarily the kind of thing where like everybody wants to be a Joe or everybody feels like they're a Joe in some way. I think it's interesting because a lot of people feel like they're a Joe, but then they want Joe to marry Lori. So I'm like, but that's not a true Joe. Like that's a Joe, like Meg rising. Like you can't (laughs) combine those two things. So I remember like even in the, I watched the 1994 movie and like, yeah, when Christian Bale proposes to her, it's you want her to accept, but then you completely understand in that moment why she doesn't. So I think that's also what I liked about her is that to see a character like, again, like she is the avatar of the author, but just say no to what's expected of her, especially as a child. I felt like really angry a lot of the time. I felt like I had a lot of things I had to do. Um, And so seeing a character just say no to something was so unbelievably compelling to me as a child that that's my favorite thing about her, that she knows herself well enough to say no to like such a handsome, rich, like cool guy who she loves, but she like understands that friendship, love and romantic love are not the same. For listeners who haven't read the book in a long time or watched the movie in a long time, as a reminder, Laurie is this like dashing young man that lives next door to the marches and he kind of attaches himself to the family as soon as he makes their acquaintance. And you get a lot more of this in the book than you do in the movie sort of the way he like embeds in all of their traditions and he comes over and gets involved with all of these plays that they do and their parents become really attached to him like I would say in the book more than in the movie you feel like he's part of the family in the movie Mm -hmm. he's just kind of this like hot guy who lives next door and in the book it feels more complicated because it feels like he's their brother and He's the closest with Joe because Joe reads as this tomboy. Like her dad calls her his his son, which is problematic in 2019 <laughs> in a way that I don't know that I really even need to go into just because she doesn't necessarily comply to some of the feminine norms of the mm-hmm. day. But Joe is closest with him. And in the book, you get a little bit more about why Joe ultimately turns down his proposal. She mm-hmm. gets this inkling that her younger sister Beth is holding out for Laurie and Joe can't bear to break Beth's heart because Beth really is so fragile and doesn't have a lot of other things going on. So Joe is like, I'm just going to remove myself from this situation. And she goes to New York to pursue her literary career, which is awesome in itself. Um, And in the movie, you don't really see that so much. She like Mm -hmm. feels herself falling for Laurie and wants to stop it. So that's when she leaves. But in the book, it's a much more selfless act, I think. And you don't I mean, I at least didn't get a sense of how much she actually cared for Lori. Like, was she really stopping herself from being in love with him? Or did she just not want to complicate the situation with Beth? I wasn't sure. But the relationship that she has with Lori is by far the most hotly contested thing in all of these articles (laughs) that I've been reading. Oh, my God. I would love to know what some of them say. I've always felt, and this is like my own prejudices, I've always felt that Lori, like, betrayed Joe by proposing to her. Because, like, if you you think you're best friends with someone with no romantic undertones for you know, at this point, it was probably like five or six years. So I've always read it as like Lori totally like crossed boundaries and he was out of line, even though obviously it's like you can't really flirt during that time period. So, you know, as far as he knows, like, you know, she could have been in love with him this whole time and he had to make a move. But yeah, the way I've always preferred to read it is that like he, you know, they were best friends and brothers. And in the book, you get more of that at the end that they do truly go back to that relationship in like an appropriate way when he goes on to marry spoiler alert, uh, Amy (laughs) awkward. Uh, but I, I do think like that would be a hard plot point to pull off now. Like the lack of jealousy, like he marries your younger sister. (laughs) And in the movie, they also switched the chronology a little bit. So she's already kissed professor bear. Um, so it's not as big a deal as it is in the book, but yeah, I, 
I love the character of Flory too. Cause he feels like a very, I mean, he gets longer to become a man than they do. Like he can basically go to Europe and like goof around <laughs> um, in France with all these French girls for a while. I think, I think he's a very kind character. And so I, I appreciate that this book, like in some ways, um, like more modern books would have more conflict in them. This book doesn't have actually a ton of conflict, which is interesting to read as an adult. Um, I think I went into it expecting like, oh, there are way more fights and stuff, but there's only like four fights in the whole book, I think. I think especially having grown up with sisters, as you did, mm-hmm. it's, hard to, it's hard to believe that these girls went 750 pages with so little (laughs) argument. It's kind of crazy. My parents would tell you that that's just not how it works in households where you have a lot of sisters. (laughs) I know it's interesting. And obviously some of them are there for like moral purposes. So when Amy burns Joe's manuscript and then she refuses to forgive her and then she falls through the ice, it's like a moral lesson that you should never go to sleep angry because you never know someone could die. And so you can like kind of see the author's hand there. But yeah, it is interesting to read a book so outside like modern rhythms of conflict and resolution and building tension and everything. So I really enjoyed that element of rereading. Like it, even though I knew what would happen plot wise, I had forgotten a lot of like how they get there. So that was really enjoyable to reread in that way. And talking about sort of the challenge of getting around some of these ideas in 2019, because as a reminder, this book was written in 1868 and 1869. It was actually originally published in two volumes, which I think is also Mm -hmm. maybe worth talking about later because it changes the reading experience a bit, at least for me, like knowing that now. But a lot of what's been written recently is, is sort of about like the challenge of adapting this book in 2018 and 2019. And obviously so many people have done it to different degrees of success. But I think especially some of these debates about whether Little Women is a feminist or anti-feminist book have really come up as all of these new adaptations are developing because there is some challenge in presenting these characters in a way that feels appropriate and like celebrates the right things without putting on a pedestal the quote-unquote wrong things based on the way that we're talking about certain issues today like it's definitely an interesting conversation and back to our conversation about Lori so much of the discourse about little women being feminist or not is about Joe's relationship with Lori and her failure or not to you know make a match in the way that a lot of readers maybe would have wanted her to with this ideal hero who lives next door Yeah, it's, I I was struggling with that too, as I was reading, like, I am very feminist, I, you know, wrote a book (laughs) with feminism in it. But I do think there are feminist elements in this book. And obviously, some of it is, like we said, like, I do know a little bit about Louisa May Alcott as the author. So you can see her moralizing, sometimes you can see her kind of struggle, uh, struggling with some of it in the character of Joe. I think it's hard to read it now and see some of the lessons, like when uh, Meg is taught to be like a perfect wife, kind of, and that's like a little hard for me to read as like a woman who's married into 2019, um, that like pretty much everything is Meg's fault and she has to go and resolve things. And just, there's a lot of self-sacrifice on the part of the women. And that to me, I think would definitely be written and portrayed a lot differently now, but I do think there's still lessons here for young people to learn. Cause obviously when you're younger and you read a book, you know, you're very ego driven. You think mostly of yourself, you're still developing empathy. Um, so I do think there's value to reading a book where there's so many little lessons on like, Oh, sometimes you have to put yourself aside because someone else is struggling or they're sad or they're ill. And so you have to think about them. And yeah, it was wild to reread this and just be like, wow, it's like interesting how I process this as a nine-year-old and how I process it now. Um, because even though I might disagree with some of these lessons as a feminist, I do think there's value in reading them, knowing the time period they came from. I agree. And I I think the book is clearly so old. I mean, it's clearly (laughs) of such a different time. I think sometimes on the show where we get into sticky territory is with books that are written in like the seventies and the eighties that might feel to kids in 2019, like they are not dissimilar from their own world, mm-hmm. but yet they still have these problematic topics and maybe takes on certain issues that we wouldn't necessarily want to promote today. And I think that's when it gets a little bit more complicated is when it's sort of this like weird gray area between like old stuff and new stuff. <laughs> yes. But the philosophy behind it is is clearly so backwards to us as adults. So I think at least with this book, it so clearly exists in a different time period. I mean, right from the first or second page, you realize that you're in the middle of the Civil War and the girl's father is away, which is something that so few children today can relate to. And even mm-hmm. even kids who do have family members who are in the military 
the communication capabilities are different. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much that's different about life for us today. So I think it's easier to look at this book as like an antique, which I hope makes it easier for kids to understand like some of this lives back in the 1800s like it doesn't all have to apply to our life now I would agree with that yeah I I hadn't thought about that reading like books from the 70s and 80s but I guess I should go back and reread those books too that I read growing up yeah when I listen to this podcast I do sometimes think like oh my god yeah that never occurred to me when I was 11 reading this book but yeah I I appreciate that there's things in here like yeah the father being gone and just the idea of being a companion to a woman like Aunt March and like like maybe getting to go abroad and all that stuff. Like, yeah, it definitely is not of our current time. <laughs> I think to your point about the positive lessons that this can teach young readers that I, that feel very timeless to me, a lot of it's about work and the value mm-hmm. of hard work. And these girls are, are have such different circumstances than than kids today. When we meet Meg, I think Meg is the oldest is 16, Joe is 15, Beth is 13, and Amy is 12. So they're very young. And Meg and Joe are both working. They're not in Mm -hmm. school anymore. Meg is working as a governess for a rich family. Joe, as you mentioned, is working as the companion for their aunt who can't leave the house and just like needs somebody to be there reading to her and taking care of her. And Marmy, their mom, really like encourages them even when they're feeling down about their circumstances because they're very insecure about the fact that they don't have a lot of money, especially Meg and Amy. And Marmy just like continually reminds them that like sometimes life is hard, but if you keep working, like maybe you'll get the things that you want even if you don't there's value in hard work alone. So I think that's a really powerful lesson, especially for kids who don't necessarily like understand this currency that adults live in of like, when you work, you get money and then you get to live your life. Like (laughs) kids don't understand that, but there's something about experiencing that through the eyes of these, of these girls that you come to love by reading this book that I think makes it a little bit easier to understand. Yeah. She put like the whole mini parable in there about like when they all have time off and then they're like, I'm not going to work at all. And mommy's like, okay. And then she's like, guess what? I'm not going to make you breakfast. And then they all get so bored and they realize that when they're idle, they, you know, their minds aren't right. And I just was laughing as I was reading it. I was like, oh girl, this is very heavy handed in this section, but it's still like, I appreciate that. Cause I think we do that even as adults. You're like, I'm going to lay on the couch all day long and watch TV for 14 hours. And then you feel terrible. So I think I, I did appreciate that like little lesson in the middle. I was like, okay, that's fair. Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> yeah. There were definitely moments where I felt like she was a little heavy handed. The parts that I definitely didn't pick up on as a kid were sort of like these heavy Christian influences. Yes which I just did not read at all as a kid. I think that I read this a couple of times, which I didn't realize initially, but as I was reading it, I found myself being able to like anticipate almost everything that was happening. And I was like, I don't think that that would happen if I'd only read this once when I was eight or nine. So I think that this was a reread for me. And then obviously watching the movie so many times also helps embed it into your brain a little bit more. I think I've read it probably four or five times at this point. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, I would read it again, even with some of my issues with it. I might read it again around Christmas time. It's definitely a good, like, cozy Christmas time book. Definitely. I totally had never picked up on these, like, heavy handed Christian vibes before. And I think, again, that's probably just an artifact of the time. One of the interesting things that I was reading today while I was preparing to chat with you more is that this whole conflict between Joe and Professor Bear at the end that a lot of us as modern readers might bristle at because Joe shares her manuscript with Mm -hmm. the professor and he's like, he basically is like, this is crappy. This is like... (laughs) He's like, this, this is, is trash, tacky. Joe. Yeah, this is like <laughs> trash. The way that you write isn't actually that good. Like, you need to have more moral lessons in your in your stories, whereas she loves to write about, like, theories and adventure and mm-hmm. all of these, like, very kind of, I don't know, definitely like genre fiction is probably how we would describe yeah. it today. She writes for the marketplace, too. Like, when they're like, oh, we want murder stuff. She's like, cool, I can do murder stuff. She's a very versatile writer. <laughs> yeah, she'll do whatever will pay her. Um, yeah. But so she shares her work with Frederick, and he at first is, he kind of is like, okay, whatever and then when she asks for his honest opinion he tells her that like if she really wants to be successful that kind of stuff's not going to fly and she needs to present something more moralistic which again to 2019 readers um I know 
my husband would ne- never dare. <laughs> like, don't you mansplain me how to write my stuff. But in reading some of these think pieces before we chatted today, this was apparently sort of the reality of the literary marketplace at the time. Like Frederick was right. And this is what many publishers were buying. Before she met Frederick, Joe was managing to make some money by writing some of this more genre stuff because, as you said, like that's what people were asking her for. But if she really wanted to be a successful author with a capital A, she was going to have to follow Frederick's instructions. And that had kind of been Louisa May Alcott's experience as well. Mm-hmm. She wanted to write things that were a little bit more genre-y, but her publisher asked her to write Little Women, and Mm -hmm. she didn't want to. Like, this was not the book she wanted to write at all, and so it's interesting that she was able to turn it around and to write what reads to me as, like, a very moralistic kind of book. It just, and I've always loved that part of her story. Like, I remember, like, being obsessed with Louisa May Alcott after I first read this book. I was like, who is this woman who wrote this? And I do, like, it's the same with Joe. Like, the fact that she was able to shift into like, okay, like, sure, I'll do this if this is what you want. And then it was so successful. So then she wrote the second part. And then she went on to write these other books, which I, I've never read Joe's Voice or any of the other sequels. I'm like conflicted on how I feel about like leaving the world <laughs> or like the first part of the world, I guess. I guess those books are canon too. But I think there's something really cool in like her like being like, okay, if that's what the marketplace wants, and then she does it and it becomes like such a huge hit and it connects emotionally with so many people. Like I'd be eager to know if that was like an experience of like other writer like modern writers if anyone could like talk about that and be like yeah like my publisher said like write write about blank and so I did and you know it became an instant classic I feel like today you have a lot more authors who would be like my publisher is wrong all the time you know like I'm gonna take it somewhere else publish (laughs) yeah you had more you have more options today I guess or or you can publish yourself whereas I would think in 1868 like there weren't as many especially for a woman yeah especially for a woman like she found her audience and she probably just kind of had to do what he said there were two parts as we mentioned briefly and I think it's worth explaining a little bit more how this came about because in the novel as we see it today there are there's part one and part two which doesn't feel that strange like I often read books that are split up that way especially Mm -hmm. long books like you kind of need an intermission somewhere along the way but in Little Women in particular these two parts were actually initially published as separate pieces so the Mm -hmm. first version that Louise May Alcott wrote in 1868 ended with Meg getting engaged to John Brooks who is Laurie's teacher and we don't really get any of the other romance stuff you read a lot more about the hard work and the struggle that the girls have to go through while they're father's away but all of this sort of like lovey-dovey travel (laughs) Beth dying there's a lot of drama that you don't get in the first book and that's sort of how Louisa May Alcott intended it and she only wrote the second part because so many readers were like who gets married to who like does joe marry laurie yeah she like amped up the drama in the second book she's like oh we're going abroad we have like numerous romances we're going to new york city like i think beth's uh, death was like one of the most traumatic things i ever read in literature because i read it so young and i guess i just didn't think she would like do me like that I was like there's no way you're gonna kill one of these four women (laughs) and now rereading the book the funny thing is like she foreshadows it from like page three she basically is like Beth is weak and not going to live for a long time (laughs) so it was actually I cried a lot reading it rereading it because I like kept being like man you're reminding me like every seven pages that Beth is going to die (laughs) and it was just I, I kept flashing back to like when I realized that as a child I don't know if you've had that experience of like reading a book when you're younger and all of a sudden you're like oh my god is this actually going to happen? (laughs) Like, I feel like a lot of younger kids may have had it recently with like the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I read it as an adult, I was like, wait, Prue is the one who got, she's going to go to the Hunger Games? Like, I could not believe that plot point. And I can imagine for younger children, that was shocking. And obviously this book is not like the Hunger Games, but I think, you know, you're reading a comedy of manners in a lot of ways. And then you get to just, I mean, honestly, a beautifully written set of scenes about like the acceptance of death. And yeah, as a child, it's a lot to take in. But even as like a woman in her 30s now, it's still a lot to take in. It was really the scenes at the seashore. And then when she comes back and her parents can see that Beth will die soon. I was like crying so hard. My husband was like, are you having a nervous breakdown? <laughs> yeah, the, the death of Beth is a little ruthless. It's funny because it's <laughs> almost like Louisa May Alcott like hate wrote the second part because she <laughs> was like, I'm going to kill Beth and I'm going to have all this other stuff happen. Amy's going to take Laurie. It was almost <laughs> like she was just like, oh, rules are off. I'm just going to like write what I want because she's, she's trolling everyone. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you guys want this book? Great. I'm going to screw with you all. Because, yeah, I think most 
young girls who wrote to her requesting the second book probably thought that she'd just deliver this like lovely second half where Joe realizes that she's been in love with Laurie all along and Amy becomes a famous painter and Beth Mm -hmm. maybe doesn't do anything remarkable but just kind of like keeps chugging along and doesn't get sick again and that's not at all what we got. No, not at all. But you're right. I bet that is what, like if I, I mean, I can imagine if I was one of the early readers, that's what I would have expected and hoped for. I actually find one of the most moving sections of the book. And I always have, even as a little girl was when, um, we first figure out or we first hear that like Brooks is interested in Meg and Joe says like, can I just marry Meg and keep the family the same? I burst into tears rereading that. Cause I was like, that's such a childish thing to say. But it like that. I understand that feeling on such a deep level where you're like, I'm so happy now. Why do things have to change? And that to me was like, it's such a beautiful sentiment. (laughs) And I feel like people wanted more of that in the second book. And she was like, no, (laughs) buckle up, guys. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah, I, I loved that scene, too. And I wonder if you feel this way again as another oldest sister, where that's not a perspective that I was familiar with myself because I am the oldest. I'm significantly older than my next sister. My next sister is six years younger than I am and then eight years and then 10 years. So obviously I was always going to be the one to leave first. I was most likely always going to be the one to get married first, which I was because otherwise that would have been kind of crazy. And so for me, like growing up, I never, it never occurred to me that anybody else would be the one to disturb the ecosystem as it was like it was always going to be me oh that's such a beautiful way to put it disturb the ecosystem I love that that's definitely how I felt that Joe was feeling like she wanted control over her over her environment she liked the way that things were and I think it's especially interesting coming from Joe because we get the sense that she's unsettled and unruly and like mm-hmm. never satisfied and even though she doesn't say it in so many words early in the book I at least like totally picture her moving to New York or moving to some other big city and doing something bigger than staying at home in Concord and hanging out with her sisters and just like marrying a guy who lives locally. She never says that, but that's how I think so many of us as readers see her. Mm -hmm. So then for her to be the one to be like, yeah, but I actually don't want anything to change. Like I want to continue to live in this tiny little world. I think that sort of drives the point home that much further that, you know, if you're unruly, a sister can feel this way. It's a, it's a very real and valid feeling, especially for somebody like Beth who really prefers things to be calm and simple. Yeah. And that's another thing I loved in the book is how they set up that um, Joe and Beth are like very, very close and Meg and Amy are very close. And like her character work really is extraordinary because you see why those two pairings of sisters makes perfect sense. And I do think that that's one of the most beautiful sections of the book when Joe kind of like changes her personality for a while to care for Beth as she's dying and she promises Beth she won't leave the parents alone and like she ultimately does <laughs> leave um, but I, I do think there's something like really even though I know it's a moralistic tale in some ways about like self-sacrifice there's something really beautiful about like her love for her sister like being like maybe I could be happy living this life like if, if it makes you happy then I can do it oh god best <laughs> but yeah I do I, I love that moment and there were times growing up when I felt like just like I really like liked my family. I liked everything we were doing. And even though I look forward to the future, it was sad. Like I remember being sad when I went to college and sad when my sisters went. And so I could relate to that feeling of being like, but like, can't we just like live longer in this moment? What if this year was three years? <laughs> well, cause it's like with every, every life change that each person goes through, it gets a little bit harder for things to even feel like they used to for a minute. Like again, yeah. even though I'm the oldest, every time one of my younger sisters has gone to college, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, it's going to be even harder for us to get back to what's quote unquote normal for us. And then, you know, it gets, or every time somebody gets a new boyfriend, you know, I'm like, is this going to be it? Like, are they going to start spending holidays with other people too? And that makes things even more complicated. And it's just interesting to like read about this experience of family through the marches and in what was a much simpler time. Like our lives now are so much more complicated. Mm -hmm. And yet these women felt, the complexity of their lives coming at them in what feels, it feels very 
black and white to me. Like, Meg moved down the road when she got married. Like, nothing really changed. But even (laughs) that small shift was a huge upset to, like, their typical routine. Yeah. And, like, I do, I I mean, I love the book. I love the book more than any of the movies. But I do like in the movies when you can see the scenes of Lori looking in at the house and him seeing, like, how active and engaged they are with each other. And I've always loved that this book has stressed so much the imagination of young women. I feel like that's something you don't get in a lot of books like or like boys get it boys are very creative and they're like out playing games and so I love that this book like Lori this like rich little gentleman is jealous of how imaginative and like how much fun these women have and their societies and with their theater and their games and so yeah I think Joe it's sad that like Joe sees like Meg wants to get married and live her adult life but Joe is like once you leave like nothing will ever be the same and that's always struck me I remember being a little kid and thinking that was really sad (laughs) I love what you said about Lori being on the outside looking in and one of the stories that I read this morning from Book Riot was arguing Mm -hmm. that Little Women is a feminist novel because so many stories out there, so many think pieces out there saying that it's not. But the closing line of that piece is, Little Women argues that women's lives are worthy of examination. Women's stories deserve to be heard. Even when beloved female characters make disappointing choices, writing and sharing their stories is a feminist act. And I think that really Mm -hmm. speaks to this theme of imagination and the fact that they always find a way to like create things together. And again, even when we don't necessarily like agree with their choices, we as readers enjoy watching what they're doing in the same way that Laurie enjoyed watching them like do their play acting and all of their other Mm -hmm. crazy antics. I, I I do think this is a feminist novel, just like by virtue of the fact that a woman who refused to get married ended up writing it who was writing it for money to support her own family like that she went with the marketplace like we said because she knew she really needed to provide money but yeah I, like it like I said it's rare to read a book that treats young women especially like little girls even when Amy is being a brat which frankly she is a lot in book number one and in book number two she's not treated like she's an idiot or she's just a brat she's like a little girl who can be bratty um, but can still sometimes catch herself she can be you know disciplined I think like the section she really shines when Beth gets sick and she's sent to live with Aunt March and for the first time I think really feels empathy and thinks outside of herself for like long periods of time. And I think that's a beautiful section of the book because you're like, oh, this character is actually like growing up in this book as I'm reading it. Um, and it feels like very real and true as a young woman. You're like, oh, have I, has that happened to me yet? Have I like, you know, has something bad happened to a friend and I had to care for them even if maybe I want to do something else. And so I actually, even though Amy is not my identified character, <laughs> I do think that Amy is an interesting character in that, like, she embodies a lot of negative qualities for, like, young women, quote-unquote, at the beginning. And then by the end, she has become, you know, like a respectable young woman. So, and she's not as, like, self-obsessed. And she's ambitious, which I think Mm -hmm. is interesting. Like, they're all ambitious in different ways. Yes. Except for for Beth, really. And it's sort of interesting that... Beth, as the unambitious sister, is the one who, like, fades away physically, literally, in every way possible. But the three sisters that are left are all very ambitious. And I think it sort of speaks to, like, the variety of choices that are available to women. And Mm -hmm. so much of, like, what we talk about, I think, in feminism today is that it's just... It's the power of having choices. Like, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that everybody, that every woman who has a child has to work outside the home. It's the fact Mm -hmm. that she has a choice to work outside the home or to be home with her kids. And respecting both choices is sort of like the crux of feminism to so many of us. And I think Meg is a great illustration of that. Like, she wasn't necessarily somebody who had all of these aspirations to go and make something of herself as a career woman, but she wanted to be a really good mom and a really good wife. And I agree with you that some of those scenes where she, like, (laughs) takes on all the responsibility for the quality of her marriage is kind of messed up but like she wants to build a happy home for her family and there's a lot of merit and power in that and then you have joe who like really wants to be an author she wants to make money too but she wants Mm -hmm. to do it through her art and through her talent and that's really cool and then you have amy who does want to pursue her art I would say more for pleasure like I don't think that she really wants to make a career of it in the same way that Joe does of her writing but she also has some like financial aspirations and that's okay like there's nothing wrong with a woman like wanting for more than she has I would say that in 2019 we really don't want young girls to think that like (laughs) marrying up is the way to do it or like marrying somebody rich is your best bet but I think it's cool that each of the sisters has a different set of ambitions, but like she's trying to do more. She's trying to do better. 
Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And I do find, I mean, I like the first half of the book for nostalgic reasons. And like I said, because I do identify with Joe, I also want them to stay in that phase forever. Yeah. But I do like the things that happen in the second act. Like, you know, that could be a very creepy plot point. Lori knew Amy when she was a little ass girl and they end up getting married. But I think the way the book handles it is they're right. Like he and Joe are too similar as personalities. He and Amy are just the way that like Joe loved Meg and loved Amy. They're different sides of like the same personality coin. And so I think she does like actually like a pretty good job making it. So you're like, Oh no, Lori had cared for her for years as a child. Then all this time goes by and like, it's not inappropriate. And they spend time together as adults before anything happens. And there's like that nice little scene where he's like, I wish we'd always row our boat together, (laughs) which is like a very sweet proposal. (laughs) Well, it makes so much more sense when you watch the movie, too, because I think when you read, like, 750 pages of this family's story, you're like, is it weird that Laurie wants to marry her? Like, I'm not really sure, because I can't help, obviously, but project and think about, like, my best guy friend growing up. Oh, yeah. Going to marry my youngest sister. Like, no. No, thank you. That's so funny. I did the same thing when I read it. I was like, how would I feel if this were my youngest sister? But, yeah, I... It, you have to, yeah, once you leave, you, you can leave that out of it, but. Yeah, because in my head, I'm like, no, get away. Like, yeah, get out of here. But then you watch the movie, and there's, like, this very sweet scene of them as Amy's being taken to go live with Aunt March when Beth is sick, and Laurie is like, I promise to take, you know, to check in on you every day. And I loved that scene. So cute, and she's like, I don't want to die before I'm kissed because she's scared that she's going to get scarlet fever like Beth. And Laurie is like, I promise to kiss you before <laughs> you die. Swoon seriously like that's a hard scene to pull off like that's like a man talking about kissing a a much younger girl but it is like a I think because you know what's coming and in that moment you see that he truly loves her as like a younger sibling yeah I I mean I actually find that relationship like when I was younger I was always like I don't know maybe Joe and Lori could have made it work out but reading it as an adult I actually think that's like kind of a beautiful relationship and the way he's like oh she controls me and he clearly likes that Amy is like going to run his household for him and it feels like yeah really like worked out it's gonna be a good marriage yeah it it didn't bother me this time around and I can't remember if it bothered me when I was a kid I was such a Joe fan that I'm sure on one reading or like one movie (laughs) viewing it bugged me but I definitely related to the fact like he loved their family and maybe he was confusing his feelings with Joe with his feelings for like the marches as a group and so it just took him a little extra time to like figure out where his romantic feelings were actually being directed and it wasn't Joe like they didn't have any romantic chemistry really this is a hot take but I think he could have been happy with Meg or Amy (laughs) I think he was like attracted to that half of the march family like I think Lori like really wanted a wife who would make him a nice home and like would like focus on loving him. I don't think he would have been happy with someone like Joe who also had like ambitions and a career. And, you know, one of the reasons she likes the professor so much is that like he feeds her mind in a really interesting way that yes, can be very paternalistic in 2019. Um, But at the same time, he treats her as like a serious person, like worthy of thought and he's older than her. So I think that means a lot to her that like this older man who was a professor in Germany, like treats her like a, a woman who has a lot of interesting thoughts which I cannot imagine a lot of people did for a lot of women in that time period. I mean, he was really the first man that took her seriously, like as as much as the way that he manages it at first kind of <laughs> bothers me. As we were saying before, like he's sort of the voice for the literary market of the time. He was telling her what he thinks she needed to know to be successful, which mm-hmm. like putting myself in that situation, it never feels good to have somebody that you care about or somebody that you respect tell you something that you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. But if you can get past that, like most of the time they mean well and they want to help you. And I just think like reading it on the page now feels a little icky, but <laughs> we've all been in that situation. And I think Frederick Bear made sense for her as a partner just as Lori made sense for Amy as a partner and Louise May Alcott I wonder if you if you're familiar with this theory having having done some research on her but I was reading that she had decided to pair Joe with Professor Bear because she was like if these readers who are writing me letters that they want Joe to get married are going to insist that I write another book fine, but I'm going to choose like a subversive choice for (laughs) Joe. Like I'm not going to marry her to Laurie, even though he's like the ideal man. I'm going to throw in some new guy who feels maybe to a lot of women at the time, like the quote unquote wrong choice. Yeah. I 
I have read that theory. <laughs> um, there's actually, so when we talk about the movie, I think we're both talking about the 1994 movie. Mm-hmm. And um, so they made, and I have seen the other ones too, but that's the one I rewatched most recently. They made a great choice of dialogue in the scene where Lori proposes to Joe. He says, you don't have to write anymore. And Winona Ryder's face just goes like black. Yeah. Um, and he's like, unless, unless you want to. And I was like, oh, that's such a great way to encapsulate that he doesn't truly understand what drives her. And then in the scenes when she meets Professor Bear and he realizes she grew up in a transcendentalist home and like had underpinnings in the same philosophy as him. It's interesting because he is older than her, but you see in that scene, I mean, they're both very good actors, but you see him kind of be like, oh, like this is like a young woman of substance. Like there's something going on here that's really interesting to me. And then obviously he like takes her to the opera and educates her and kisses her there. But I do think there's something like really interesting about pairing Joe not with a peer, but like almost like an older male mentor figure. That does feel, it feels subversive now. Like I feel like even now we'd be like, oh, interesting choice. Um, Cause in the book they say he's 50. And she's like 19. Yeah, she's young. I mean, now that would be a pretty subversive relationship. Like in 1874, when the second part came out, like that's nuts. I love that. I I loved reading it as a kid too, being like, oh, wow, that is not where I thought this book was going. Yeah, it feels a little dangerous. It does. And I think like, yeah, again, like you're eight, nine years old reading this book and you're like, wow, like I can't believe I'm allowed to read this book where like Joe and this way older dude are like, (laughs) <laughs> gonna get married. <laughs> Before we move away from this conversation about the romantic interests, as much as I could talk about them forever, <laughs> I have to say two quick things. One of which is that I cannot wait to see Timothy Chalamet as Laurie because oh, perfect. I mean, Christian Bale was pretty perfectly cast, but like he feels. I'm gonna be a little sexually confused by this just between the two movies, but like he feels like a per- absolutely perfect modern choice. Yeah, he is. He's gonna be great, and then. About Christian Bale. So as we record this, it is the day after the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. And Christian Bale was nominated for Vice. And so the last movie that I saw Christian (laughs) Bale in before rewatching Little Women was Vice. (laughs) And I don't I don't really spend that much time like thinking about Christian Bale, looking at pictures of Christian Bale (laughs) on the internet. So I I guess I had forgotten that Christian Bale was Laurie in this movie. And then I was watching it, and I was like, is that Dick Cheney? Like, hold on. (laughs) And so then I had to pull up a side-by-side of the two of them, and it totally blew my mind. And I was was just very confused, and I was like, wow, prosthetics are really incredible. And then last night watching the Academy Awards, they showed Christian Bale, like, real-time without his Dick Cheney suit on. And I was like, okay, now I remember. Yeah, and his, uh, I, so I, my big Christian Bale movie is American Psycho, okay. where he obviously looks a little more similar, but his teeth are like, there's a lot of scenes in Little Women where you see he has uh, the unusual teeth, like, kind of like, they're not perfectly straight. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like, he said he has such a distinctive face, especially from certain angles. I mean, I thought he was just perfectly cast because he feels like a lovable young man. He he and Joe really have that chemistry. He and Winona Ryder <laughs> really have that chemistry of like two young people who are just like vibing so hard as friends. Yeah, I, he's he's perfect. And I can't wait to see the new new version of Laurie. <laughs> I just love that his name is also Laurie Lawrence. Like, I mean, I know it's Theodore, but. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes me want to name, if I ever have a son, this book kind of made me want to name my son Teddy. Like, I just fell in love yeah. with him. I loved him so much. I also, I do want to say one thing about the character, the older Mr. Lawrence character. Mm-hmm. That That is probably one of the, obviously I have like a very soft spot for Beth's scenes, but I think one of the most beautiful subplots in the book is how Beth comes to replace his dead daughter who died many years ago, yeah. and he has her come into the home and, and play music, you know, secretly. Like he pretends he's not listening so she can enjoy his beautiful piano without being afraid because she's so timid. And then like when he gives her the piano and she hugs him, it's like, oh my, like I was, again, weeping uncontrollably. Like I think this book does such a good job showing you like small acts of kindness and how they add up to something really major. And like, he's a great character. Like he's, you know, kind of like a curmudgeonly old man, but you see, he really does try to like understand Lori through Joe and like care for him the best he can. And then his heart just like kind of cracks open with Beth. And it's, I find those scenes just like really unbearably beautiful. Yeah. When he gives her the piano, it's really special and she's just so grateful. I think she would have been grateful for anybody to have given her that kind of a gift, but for it to be Mr. Lawrence, who at first made her so afraid and was so intimidating to her. I think it, it was a really, I mean, Unfortunately, Beth doesn't have the opportunity to grow as much as the other sisters because she gets sick and her life kind of like goes to a standstill. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, we unfortunately have to watch her die. And I think that her relationship with Mr. Lawrence and the way she comes to see him as so warm and loving and giving is like her major point of growth throughout the book. I would agree with that. Yeah. And it's nice to see a character because, I mean, she's a bit of a hard sell, right? Like she's so timid. She can barely speak to anyone. Like she comes off as almost like simplistic in her desires for a long time. But I just like love that. Also, that's like crazy foreshadowing to have Beth like replace his own dead daughter that she dies to. But yeah, that relationship and, and hit him, like the way he like makes up the job for Mr. Brooke in DC so he can go travel with Mrs. March without her having to like sacrifice her pride or anything. Um, I just like really appreciated like all the little characterizations around the men in the book where like they obviously don't have as much inner life as the women because it's not about them, which I love. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you do see like moments where like these young women, like they get interested in them and that changes their behavior, which I love. They're generally surrounded by lovely men. Yeah. Which is great. Again, like lack of like the type of conflict we would expect now, which I really do appreciate as a reader now sometimes to like have a break from like the terrible things in the news and terrible things that are often represented in media, which like I agree with, like, I think we should see a range of experiences and not everything can be as simplistic as like parts of little women. Um, but it is also nice to like have men in there who are like, have good intentions. Yeah. They're supportive. (laughs) They are like good listeners for the most part. Mm -hmm. They're generous. And again, like in 1868, when this was written, not sure that that was the norm. (laughs) Yeah. They admire them and they, like, respect them for who they are. Like, we don't get to know the father that well, but all we know about him is that he's, like, a transcendentalist who lost all his money doing something. I don't even know. But he, like, toward the end, like, I actually also really love the scenes. Maybe, you know, part of it is because now I'm a married adult woman. But, like, when I was younger, I don't remember having any reaction to, like, Professor Bear and um, uh, Mr. March, like, really getting along so well with their philosophies. But as an adult with a husband, like, that part was very touching to me, that, like, this older man who is probably, like, pretty close to her dad's age, honestly, and her father get along so well. Like, I was like, oh, that's, like, something I definitely did not pick up on when I was nine. I was, like, boring, 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 boring. But now I'm, like, that's, like, actually, like, really rare to have, like, the person you're married to, like, and, like, older people in your life, like, really get along on that deep level. I was definitely more fascinated by the parents on this reading because Mm -hmm. I realized how young Marmee must be. I mean, I think in the movie, I think they tried to make Susan Strandon, like, maybe late 40s, early 50s. But if you do the math in the book, she's probably, like, mid-30s when we meet her. She's super young to be juggling all of this. But, yeah, like, Meg's 16, at this time in history, you have to imagine that Marmee was like early 20s when Meg was born. So she can't yeah. be older than 40. And she is just holding it down with these yes. girls. And there's a lot of things that she says in the book that I don't necessarily love. I like the way that they portrayed her in the 1994 movie. She definitely is like a little bit tougher and a little bit more progressive in the movie. Oh, whereas yeah. in- All that stuff about not buying silk because it's made by slaves. And then they're like, oh, this silk is made here. And she's like, yeah, but it's made by children. Meg, I I loved that scene. I was like, oh, damn, you don't really get this in the book, like Meg confronting everyone on their social politics. Yeah, Marmee is definitely like more political and just like cooler in the movie. In the book, she kind of like waffles back and forth. In one breath, she's saying that there's nothing that's better in life than being married to a good man. And then in the next breath, she's saying better to be a happy spinster than an unhappy wife. And it's kind of confusing. So I, I just like wasn't sure how to read Marmee, but I did find it interesting now sort of putting her age in perspective and realizing what she's juggling and what she's managing and then watching the 1994 portrayal of her by Susan Sarandon. Like I sort of like to find my Marmee somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I wonder, do we know who's going to play her in the new movie? I don't know if that's been cast yet. Laura Dern. (gasps) I know. Wow. This casting is very, very good (laughs) because yeah, she, I could definitely, Laura Dern like looks old enough, but still like has a very young energy. And I actually, do you remember where they're going to set it? I think they're slightly older. I don't think we're going to see young, the young part in the new movie. I think a little bit older, everything that I'm saying, which again, it could change because I found it all on IMDb and (laughs) I like to think that that's accurate, but who knows? It looks like maybe a little bit older, but I didn't see exactly where we're going to sort of find them in the story. I think that's just a sign of like 1868, but 
this, I mean, I could see so many people adapting this movie now. I'm very glad it's going to be Greta Gerwig because I think she's amazing. Um, but just like the themes that are still appealing to people. Like I know for me personally, it's because I am a Joe, like the idea of like self-service um, and like giving up your own ego to support others is something that's very interesting to me. Just the themes of like a family and like trying to raise progressive young women in a non-progressive time. I mean, I could honestly write a movie adaptation like that would be totally different focusing on all the things that appeal to me. What were some of the things that like the themes that you really would like pull out if you were to write an adaptation of this? I think it would be a lot about sort of like the bonds of family because I love mm-hmm. that in the first half of the book, the simplicity of it, like the coziness of like mm-hmm. knowing that your family is going to be there. I think that some of the relationships would be a little bit harder to play with just because I'm not sure what parts of like Joe's story I'd want to highlight. I'm not sure how I would want to play the Professor Bear thing because I think you can see it in two different lights but I think as much as I could focus on like the female relationships is probably the the direction that I would go yeah yeah I mean I think Gabriel Byrne was perfect in in 1994 because he obviously is older than her but he does such a good job like expressing why she's captured his attention but even the first time I saw them together I was like damn there's a huge age gap there And as a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, he's so old, which now I feel like really rude to think. But when I first saw the movie, I was probably eight, nine, ten years old. He seemed really old to me. And I just, I was obsessed with Winona Ryder in that role. I think probably for years after, I like couldn't bear to watch Winona Ryder and anything else because she was Joe to me. Yes. And so I was like, who is this old man? It's interesting because I've heard a lot of people say they don't like her in that role. To me, I think she's perfect. I think they're all actually perfectly cast. I agree. Um, And so maybe it's just because I think maybe I, I... may have seen this in the theaters in 94. I, I Maybe I didn't, but I have a memory of seeing it in the movie theater. So, like, at that point when I was 10, I'm not trying to, like, parse casting decisions. I just was like, oh, that's Joe. Like, she yeah. has, like, the wild hair. And I think Winona Ryder's energy was perfect. It, it really worked for me. So, yeah, I think also there are some things, like, with stories like this, when you read them when you're little, like, I'm not as critical as I would be with things reading now. Like, even if the things that we're talking about that, yes, absolutely, I can see... as an author and an adult are slightly problematic. Like this book will always like live in like a part of my heart that like, it's hard to scrape at it too much. Which is sort of the interesting part of doing this podcast is sometimes I find myself like really forcing people to contend with (laughs) hard questions about things that they love. And it's nice to have a conversation like this where I feel like the good does win out. And Mm -hmm. this is such a classic that it's like hard to... It's hard to, like, kick it out of its special place in anybody's heart, no matter what the problems are that have come up later. Like, this is a hard one to really ruin for somebody, which I'm very happy about because I would not want to ruin Little Women for anyone. (laughs) No, I mean, obviously, like, this is a a pretty much completely white story, like, even though it's taking place during the Civil War. I actually think that line about slavery in the movie is more, uh, way more explicit than anything in the book, which is 777 pages long. Yeah. So that's something reading it as an adult, I was like, oh, that's like a weird omission that we're not getting any of that. But again, like, I don't know that that would have been appropriate for a woman to put into a novel at that time. And I don't know, that's something I'd like to know more about, like, why those choices were made but yeah like reading it as an adult I if I had read it and hated it I honestly would have been like pretty devastated (laughs) well I always ask all of my guests if the experience of rereading a book for the podcast has ruined a book for them in some way or made them love it all the more and I think I kind of know what you're gonna say (laughs) but let's conclude like I want a firm conclusion on which side of that you come down on definitely love it all the more and I have just like very fond memories that my mother would read this out loud to us and like now I can definitely see reading this out loud to my own children when I have them I don't have children yet but there's so much dialogue that's the other thing I forgot is a lot of it there's just huge swaths of conversations and I know that's a book and that's a dumb thing to think but I had forgotten like how much is just the girls speaking to each other um, and I think like you have sisters too you just it reminds you of so many conversations you had with your sisters growing up and it just yeah it, I really had like a wonderful time reading it like I said a lot of tears <laughs> so many tears just like it's a very nostalgic read I think as an adult for a lot of people I don't know if you had that experience but it reminded me so much of being a girl yeah I had the same experience I really loved it so so much 
I was really looking forward to doing this episode. I'm so glad that you picked the book so that we can do it. I found it very nostalgic. A lot of listeners know this already, but I lost my grandmother in September and she loved the podcast, although she had a lot of opinions about it. Um, (laughs) But one of the books that she was always pushing me to do was Little Women. And so I'm so glad that we got to do it. And funnily enough, the episode that will have dropped last week, once this episode goes live about Speak by Lori Hulse Anderson, Mm -hmm. my grandmother also really wanted me to do an episode about Speak. So we have two very different books that she wanted me to cover. (laughs) And, you know, some divine timing. We are covering them within a week of each other, which is kind of interesting. So thank you for picking this book. I genuinely enjoyed reading it and it has definitely made me love it all the more coming back to it. Thank you so much for giving me the list. I honestly don't even remember what else was on it because my eyes flashed down to this title and I thought like, what a fantastic way to start this year. Like I just finished writing a book and promoting a book and I'm kind of thinking about what's next in my life. And like, it just really felt like very meaningful to me to reread it. So thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. What other than Little Women have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I'd love to give them some other titles to add to their lists. Well, I started a year ago, I started a book club just because I felt like the internet has like broken my concentration a little bit. So I'm trying to read more more books and also more seriously to have discussions like this. So this was wonderful. Um, my book club is reading The Witch Elm by Tana French, who's an Irish novelist mm-hmm. right now. And I'm really enjoying that. That's like very... It's very, very interesting and good. I reread Lolita as an adult as part of the book club. And that, I mean, it's a a hard sell. It's a hard experience. I'll say that, especially given everything going on in our culture right now. But that was something like I really, it was like an, an act of reading that was really, felt really intellectual to me. Like I had to, I can only read probably, I'm a very fast reader. I can read like 200 pages a day, but with Lolita, I would read like three pages, put it down, have like a think about it, read three more. Um, so that was something that just like intellectually felt like very vigorous to me in a way that felt good, even though it's obviously a very upsetting book. Well, I'll include links to both of those books in the show notes for listeners who want to check them out. I'll also include a link to little women, I think Caitlin and I can both agree that this is worth picking up, even if it's the kind of thing where you like buy it and you read 10 pages here and there, just like read it over a long period of time. You definitely don't need to be like constantly engaged with it. It's kind Mm -hmm. of just like a relaxing thing to pick up here and there. If you're not reading it for a podcast or something like we were like, (laughs) just enjoy the experience. It's really lovely. And then of course, I'll include a link to Caitlin's book, New Erotica for Feminists, which I would Mm -hmm. absolutely recommend. I think everybody needs a copy on their shelf. You will really enjoy it. Um, And I hope everybody orders a copy for themselves. Thank you. Yeah, there's a literary section in there. I actually use my reading of Lolita to write some jokes for the book. (laughs) Amazing. And it comes full circle. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for being on SSR. We've loved having you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a wonderful experience. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.